The small town of Gonzales, Texas, sits a little over 60 miles east of San Antonio. It's home to about 8,000 people, and it's also home to the Gonzales Memorial Museum. To reach the building, you walk along a reflecting pool that leads to the main entrance. At first, the museum looks monumental, but as you get closer, you realize it's only about the size of a house. You enter through an open vestibule that divides the building in two. If you turn to the left, you enter the building's north wing. Although, calling it a wing might be overselling it a bit. It's really just a room. And then, of course, in the middle of the room, we have the original cannon displayed for, for everybody to come in and take pictures and, and all of that. I noticed there's a sign that says, uh, yes, it is the real cannon. Do people ask that question a lot? Uh, yes, and it's not as big as they expected. And that's the, that's the main thing, is that they, when they walk in that, that door, that cannon is, is pointed towards that door, and they go, it's not as big as I thought it was. That cannon is what we're going to talk about on this, the 25th episode of The Works, a podcast about the world we build around us. I'm Brantley Hightower. The guy showing me around the Gonzales Memorial Museum is Gary Schurig. He's the museum's head curator, and between his mustache and his glasses, he looks a lot like Teddy Roosevelt. When we sit down in his office, he tells me the story of Gonzales and its famous piece of artillery. Okay, let's go. Gonzales was established as one of the first Anglo-American colonies in the part of Mexico that would later become Texas. Of course, the Comanche people were already living in that area, and they weren't all that thrilled about their new neighbors. Well, it started in 1831 because the um, Comanches had literally burnt Gonzales to the ground two times. And so they applied to the Mexican government for some kind of relief. And that's how they ended up getting this cannon that we have here on display. But the cannon the Mexican government let them borrow wasn't all that great. For one, it was really small. It's approximately about 21 and a half inches long. It, it, well, it has a about an inch and a half bore, so it doesn't have a very big bore on the cannon. The bore of a cannon refers to its inside diameter. A cannon with an inch and a half bore can shoot a cannonball that's an inch and a half wide. Or at least, it should be able to do that. They gave them the cannon, and prior to giving it to them, they literally spiked it in the touch hole, drove a nail in it so it wouldn't shoot live ammunition. A touch hole is the small opening in the back of the cannon where you light the powder that fires the cannonball out the opposite end. If you plug up the hole, you can't use the cannon as a cannon. Settler was only able to put powder in it and put maybe a long fuse and set it off, and it would make a lot of noise and shoot fire and smoke, and that served its purpose against the Comanches because they had no idea what that, that thing was that was making all that noise. So just to recap, the Mexican government lent the people of Gonzales a used cannon that was really small and couldn't shoot. Now something to keep in mind is that Mexico had only won its independence from Spain 10 years earlier. It was still figuring out how to govern itself, and over the next few years what had started out as a federal republic devolved into a dictatorship. Its constitution was repealed, and its state legislatures were abolished. For many, this was not a popular move. 
As talk of rebellion grew, the Mexican government decided it might be a good idea to take back some of that artillery it had lent out over the years. When the people of Gonzales heard that a small detachment of the Mexican army was heading their way, they decided the best thing to do was to bury their cannon in the ground and call their neighbors for help. Several days later, when the Mexican army showed up on the banks of the Guadalupe River, they were surprised to see over a hundred men from Gonzales and other nearby settlements. This hastily formed militia had elected John Henry Moore to be their leader. Now, Moore was a wise commander, and he knew that before you can start a proper fight, you need a proper flag. We know that John Henry Moore told the ladies to uh, make a flag, and they took a white wedding dress, and they cut it out, and they painted it as you see the replicas now. A cannon, a star, and the words, come and take it on the bottom of it. And that's what they used for that that come and take it battle. Armed with a flag and a catchy slogan, they were ready to dig up their cannon and face the enemy. They go across the river, set up their cannon, unroll their flag and say, okay, if you really want this cannon, you can come and take it. And they fired it at them basically one time. And a Mexican lieutenant said, that's good enough. Y'all keep the cannon, we go back to San Antonio. This relatively minor skirmish over an objectively small cannon was the first battle of the Texas Revolution. The people of Gonzales would play a large role in that struggle. The following year, the community sent 32 men to the Alamo, the only reinforcements to arrive during the siege. There were also 75 men from Gonzales at the Battle of San Jacinto, where Texas decisively won its independence. A hundred years later, the Gonzales Memorial Museum was built to tell the story of the outsized role Gonzales played in Texas history. It's a good story, but it's one that's not all that well known. But what is widely known is the Come and Take It slogan and the flag upon which it was written. In recent years, it's become quite popular. Our governor, uh, Abbott, tweeted out to uh, Obama, if you're going to do gun control by executive order, he tweeted out, come and take it. Hey, we're not turning our guns in, and we're not running, and we're not backing down. If you want them, come and take them. On the banner, they painted a cannon, along with four words that echoed through the ages. And you know what it is? It said, come and take it. Come and take it. Come and take it if you want it. Come and take it if you think you can. Come and take it, but I warn you, you'll have to pry it from my cold dead hands. In the last decade or so, the come and take it flag has increasingly been flown by people wanting to make a statement about gun rights. Just as the people of Gonzales resisted the Mexican government when it attempted to take back their cannon, some feel any attempt to regulate firearms must also be resisted. The analogy isn't perfect. There are few proponents of individual cannon ownership these days, and so it's become necessary to update the flag. The new version replaces the cannon with an AR-15-style rifle. It's a rifle that's actually longer than the cannon on display in Gonzales. Back at the museum, I asked Gary Schurig what he thought about the come-and-take-it flag being used by groups to advance a particular cause. I thought this might upset him, that he might find it disrespectful or offensive, but I was wrong. But it's interesting that it's taken on its own little life of itself. I don't know. I mean, it, it's interesting because you get a lot of people that think that 
it was just thought up in the last 10 years and then you get them here and realize that no it's a little bit longer than that so yeah even though the come and take it flag was created for a specific historic event its defiant tone has had a wide appeal unlike the cannon itself the flag is no longer just a historic artifact it's become separated from its original context it's become a symbol Symbols are powerful. If symbols weren't powerful, people would use them. And flags are powerful. If flags weren't powerful, people wouldn't use them. That's Pete Vandepute. He probably knows more about flags than anyone else in South Texas. He's the chairman of the Dixie Flag and Banner Company in San Antonio. I asked him if it was possible for a flag to mean different things to different people. Oh, absolutely. You've seen that in our flag, the United States flag. Uh, you've watched how different groups have used the Stars and Stripes during the Civil Rights Movement of the 60s, where you saw protesters for civil rights flying the United States flag, and you saw the anti-integration people flying the United States flag, both on opposite sides of the issue, both flying the same flag, and obviously both of them thinking it meant something different. Back in Gonzales, you see the come-and-take-it flag a lot. A huge version of it flies near the courthouse downtown. It's on the doors of the city maintenance trucks, and a photograph of it is the first thing you see on the city's website. Both the flag and the cannon appear on the masthead of the local newspaper. It's clearly an important part of the city's identity. It's a source of pride. It's a symbol. The funny thing about symbols is that they don't belong to anyone. Like a cannon, a symbol can be borrowed. It can be used by different people at different times for different reasons. But at least in Gonzales, the come-and-take-it flag will always be a symbol of their history. It will always be a reminder of who they are. It will always be a reminder that even though their town might be small, like their cannon, it's big enough to get the job done. Thanks today to Gary Schurig, Pete Vandepute, Sarah Reevely, and Mayor Connie Kassir. The mayor of Gonzales wanted to personally invite you to the Come and Take It Festival that happens every fall. There's food, beer, parades, and live music. We bring headline bands in and uh, always have some really good music, and it's all free. Where else can you come and take it for free? Special thanks to Christine Finnessy, Kathleen McGovern, and Rachel Stevens, who all helped edit the script. The music was by Toby Wilson, Steve Voss, and Tony Salamone. The Works is a production of High Works, and you can find more information about it and everything we've talked about today at high.works. Until next time, I'm Brantley Hightower. <laughs>